Welcome to the Joyful Journey podcast. If you're looking for more clarity in your life, clarity of purpose or how to activate that purpose, and you are someone who wants to operate from your highest self to be a force for good you know this world craves, then this is the show for you. I'm Anita Adams, your host and guide to finding clarity and creating a life you love. Let's tap into our inner wisdom, access our highest self, and unleash joy. As we do this, we raise our vibration and heighten the collective consciousness. And that, my friend, is the joyful journey. Let's dive in. Hey, Joyful Junior, thanks for tuning in. I'm Anita Adams, your host, and today I have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to Suzanne Dudley Schoen. Suzanne is a personal and professional life coach, a poet, and the author of Out of the Box, A Journey In and Out of Emotional Captivity. It is the writing of this book and the powerful story she has to share that inspired me to invite Suzanne to be a guest on the Joyful Journey podcast. Thank you so much for being here with me, Suzanne. It's such a delight to be sitting here with you. Oh, Anita, it's such a, an honor, a privilege and a delight for me too. Thank you. Awesome. So um, before we get into the interview, I want to make sure that our listeners, if they are inspired by what we talk about and want to uh, read your book, which I really hope they will, because I believe this is a really powerful story that can transform the lives of many. Uh, Suzanne goes by the pen name of Christina Dudley. So if you're looking for out of the box, and here's a bit for anybody that's looking visually out of the box, a journey in and out of emotional captivity, pen name, Christina Dudley. <laughs> All right. All right, my friend, your story really gripped me from the very first page. And it kept me entranced and wanting to know what was going to happen next. You are seriously a gifted storyteller with this ability to place the the reader in the room with you, seeing what you are seeing, feeling what you are feeling. It's wonderful. And so much of your story is relatable. Even though I haven't personally experienced the same abusive situation that you talk about in the story, I have certainly felt that not enoughness, that self-doubt, and all the associated fears that have kept me stuck in the past. Well, let's start with filling in our listeners a little bit. Can you tell us more about what your story is about and why why you are sharing this very personal story? Yeah, sure. And, and I want to thank you for those nice acknowledgments. I'm like all you know, blushing and hot <laughs> over here right now. Um, and I and I'll say that you know I, my hope was that it's relatable to all people because of some of those. Um, particular weak, you know, vulnerabilities that we each have as human mm -hmm. beings, and and I'll just I'd like to use the language because sort of dysfunctional or or unhealthy relationship as a way to sort of name it because we can all relate to that. And the reason why I wrote it was at the time I was also um, let me let me take a moment. As a writer, a lifelong writer and journaler, you always hear the thing, write what you know. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a person that believes in service. And 
for a while I was struggling with how can I be of service? And if I'm a writer and I write what I know, perhaps my story can serve. Mm -hmm. And at the time that I was thinking about writing it, I was a volunteer for a local women's shelter. And I was involved in sort of a subunit of it. And they were really grappling with at the time, because it was before me too, how do we get the community and people to understand like this is a very complicated serious you know social situation that we're all ultimately responsible for to change and i i sort of examine you know what is it that helps people change and often it's personal stories so that they understand kind of mm -hmm. emotional context and like why people make the decisions that they do and so my you know my being in a relationship that was really very destructive to me for a long time, how can I offer an insight into that? And that was through story. So okay. great, beautiful. I mean, it's um, certainly very powerful. And you know, the, it, it's com you are helping people create a conversation around domestic abuse and domestic violence and. And by sharing your voice, you're giving permission to, for others to to speak up, which I think is really important, really important. At the end of each chapter, you include a short poem that you've written. And I love that. I, I, I love that, um, the beauty in that and the the storytelling with your uh, the narrative of what happened in your life and also weaving in the poetry, which I understand was a big part of your healing process as well, was the was the writing the poetry. The first poem is entitled No Way Out. Would you be willing to give us a reading of that poem right now? I'd be happy to. It sort of sets the context, as you say. Yeah. So it's called No Way Out. I am the mouse, frightened off with a threat. In a heartbeat, a cleaver is brought down in my path. I turn, try another direction. Once more, the slam of the cleaver. I scurry away, scratching hard to find freedom. The flash and bam of the cleaver. I race, blocked. I turn, bam. Crash of the cleaver brought down by a certain hand. Again, and again, and again. I run, worrying wondering if I will never, ever find a way. I tire, the hand grabs my tail. I squeal, scrabble, scramble, running nowhere. Exhausted and nearly spent, my feet slow until finally I lay quiet, my body rocking back and forth with each heaving pant. The hand lifts me, dangling into a palm. I feel hot laughing breath on my fur. I am petted with soft strokes as I tremble and squeak, afraid and pleading. The gentleness continues, and for a time the palm is still. I settle and curl into its folds. Panic subsides until the hand shifts, until it all happens again. Wow. <sighs> I feel that. Thank you. So um, visceral. I when I I read the read your poem the first time, and then after reading the book, I went back to uh, read that poem again. And I'm like, wow, just it, of course it illustrates the dynamics between you and your ex husband. 
At the time, yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How long did you live feeling like that little mouse? You know, it's hard to identify the exact sort of moment when it began, because I think that part of what makes these sort of, you know, unhealthy relationships so tricky is that it's often slow, like it, you know, it was good. And there, and there was often really great stuff in between. So you don't really understand kind of what's happening while you're in it. It's a progression. And so, as I said, sort of hard to identify exactly, but I think in total, you know, and then there was a long tail to it, you know, mm-hmm. to complete the thought, you know, it starts slowly, it kind of amps up. And then for years afterwards, I felt that sort of anxiousness so often. And um, that's the other piece of, you know, what's so important, I, I believe, in writing the story and why, why I would want other people to understand that there's hope on the other side of it is that it takes time. It's a process to kind of recover and recover oneself. Yeah. And I got the sense that there were, there were a lot of really great highs in, the, in there too. So I imagine the, the good times, you, you strive to relive those good times or have those good times be there. And perhaps they help you get through the bad times, but not in a necessarily a good way. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, I'm wondering if it's the good stuff that happens that just keeps us, can potentially keep you stuck longer because you want that attention and acknowledgement and the excitement that you, you did have with him at different times. Yeah. You know, and fundamental, there were many wonderful occasions. And so as a person that's like trying to make a relationship work or as a parent that wants to keep a family together, you know, you, you look to the good things and you say, well, you know, that was an aberration or, you know, I wanted to, you know, I want the good. It's so far away. or, you know, there's so much to appreciate and, you know, and, and also wholesale, not writing off someone because, of whatever reason, like that, because there was a lot of good stuff. So yeah, I mean, it does often keep you longer. Like if it was really just horrible the whole time, you would leave. Yeah, I suppose probably be easier to leave if it was horrible all the time. Absolutely. Well, I noticed in your book and throughout the book, in while you're reliving your time with your ex-husband, you keep making excuses for his behavior and often even claim responsibility for it. Now, is this something you've come to recognize as a common trait among those who suffer domestic abuse? And if so, how do you how do you break that out of that cycle? Or is that like a huge question and too big to answer in a short little podcast? <laughs> it's all right. You know, there's you can ask it and I can do my best at answering it. And I would say um, it's an it's a huge part of of uh, the challenge is that incrementally you sort of start making agreements to things to try to make it work. So it's a, it's a bit related to the good stuff, right? Like you fudge the line of, well, that was a boundary that I really firmly believed in before, but you know, this is an exception or he was stressed out and, and you want it to be okay. You just, you, I mean, it's a human desire to want it to be okay. And as you know, somebody that is a people pleaser, that's also played into it, you know, like, well, I'll make it okay. Cause it'll, it'll please him too, you know, and 
also as a perfectionist, like, well, it must be something that I can do or make better, or I've done something wrong. So I got to figure this out. And so, you know, part of the the complexity of these things is it's not just that person's evil. It's like, it's some of the dynamics that happen in, in the dance of it that hook into like my stuff that, you know, when out of whack is not a good thing. Like perfectionism can keep you striving high and it can also just be a torture chamber, you know? Mm -hmm. So it was, it was those combinations of things. So in terms of the other part of your question, like how do you recover from that? It's, it's slowing things down, seeing really sort of from as possible, a detached place emotionally to really examine like, what are the pieces of what happened? Is that acceptable? If you saw it in somebody else, like if that was happening, would you say, hey, that's fine? Or does that bring up a, hey, that's not so good? You know, that's a, a, a great way to tell, right? If you're, you're talking to your best friend and you put it on them to see how you would maybe give them advice or your daughter or whoever. Exactly. Yeah. So that your self-regulation is like, you know, way I'm, I'm a little off because if I'm seeing it, it as unacceptable behavior in an, in someone I love's relationship, then I should look at that myself. The other piece being, um, that emotional detachment isn't that to say that you stop feeling, but it's you're having enough emotional space that then you can really slow it down and understand like what's going on. What's as, as I play out this conversation, you know, what's happening and do I agree to each step of it? So that helps kind of you own what's, what might be yours and what isn't. Um, and it's a slow process. And, and I, I mentioned in the book, you know, I use a lot of 12 step uh, programs as well to help with some of that. Like what's my insanity, you know, what are the, right. what are the parts that are mine to take care of? Right. Unwrapping it all. Right. And trying to understand and understand yourself and understand what's, what's going on. Yeah. Because, it, it, you know, the only person you can change really is yourself. There's, you're hoping for that other person to change. Yeah. Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I learned that lesson the hard way. <laughs> right? <laughs> so if the ownership has to take place here of like, what's mine to do, even in like, what's mine that, that played into this, not from a shame place, but like really as a place to empower oneself. Cause that's really what I'm interested in. Like hmm. I'm, I'm not interested in blame. I'm interested in like, how do we not make this happen anymore? How do I, you know, become a whole safe, happy person again. And anybody that is in, in some sort of relationship that's really toxic for them. Like how, how can you truly empower someone mm -hmm. with tools that are not, dependent upon someone else's behavior. Right. And writing was one of your big tools, wasn't it? Your journaling. Huge tool. Cause it, it was part of that, like, how do I slow down? And so often the journaling for me too, was handwritten in journals. So that also has, you know, your handwriting is a lot slower than you can type yeah. and it would slow down and allow me to put my feelings in written form. Whereas sometimes I'd be so, overwrought 
emotionally, so nervous, so anxious. I couldn't even formulate how I felt or describe it to someone, let alone the idea of this is shameful. It's embarrassing. Am I crazy? Because I often thought, you know, he would diminish something that I was state as a problem or an upset and it would have me double back and doubt myself. So it was a way to kind of replay those things afterwards when it wasn't a heightened emotional moment and be able to say, this is how I feel. And, you know, even if it was just between myself and the journal at first. Absolutely. Uh, You must be familiar with uh, Julia Cameron's The Artist Way in her morning pages. Yeah. 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 So I I immediately think of that. And uh, when I was going through some challenging times uh, in my life, I turned to doing the morning pages every day for for years. You know, this is in my early 20s when I was really um, struggling with some some stuff. And I found that the, these morning pages and the idea behind it, for me anyways, was just to get it out of my head, out of my body, really, out of my body that I was holding on to these negative thoughts and feelings. And it was crippling me. I I wasn't able to move forward with anything because I just had this weight of what I was thinking all the time. But by writing it out, there was a bit of a release in it. So I felt like it gave me space to then go another step or do something a little more for for myself. So for me, that was an extremely powerful tool. And I recommend it to anybody that is wanting to just get things sorted out of their out of their head, anything that's heavy on them that they just want to get out and to not even go back and read them. Like I never would go back and read them. I would, and they would be loose leaf sheets of paper that would then get burned or crumpled up and thrown into the garbage. It wasn't about writing anything that was worthy of rereading. It was just a stream of conscious, get this crap out of my head and body for now so I can think about other things or move move forward in another more positive way, so. Oh, I'm so glad that you used that tool and, and like, especially like destroying it afterwards. Like it's such a great symbol and ceremony of like, I don't want this. And yet like the physical release of writing it and, you know, getting it out of you in a way to then discard to go, Hey, I want to do this a different way. I I commend you. And I'm so glad you used that tool and it helped. (laughs) It really did. And it is a form of letting go of things that are can hold you, keep you stuck. So just, it's a good tool. Highly recommend it. (laughs) Now I loved, uh, you have another poem in your book. Uh, It's called Untwisted that reveals a, it seems to me, reveals a significant turning point in your journey. In that poem, you're that little mouse again, running through the dry grass, trying to escape the hawk that circles above. Just before you're about to escape, he seizes you in his talons and lifts you high into the sky. And in that moment, a new understanding dawns that you had carried the hawk. Can we talk about that? Yeah, you know, I, 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 you said it in such a way as like made it sound like such a good story. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. I mean, that is your story. <laughs> like, wow. You're carrying um, the hawk. Let's talk about that. It's so profound. I, yeah. So it, it's somewhat related to what I was just describing is I felt so undone and so weak and so disempowered. Like I, I really was unraveled to such a degree that I even went to a doctor and I'm like, something's wrong with me. And um, 
feeling that I wasn't doing life right. I wasn't doing me right. I wasn't parenting right. I wasn't clearly wasn't good enough in my marriage to, you know, keep this person from straying or doing things that, you know, were felt so hurtful. And, and in trying to sort of reclaim myself, like I said, sort of realizing what was mine and what wasn't mine and understanding that I had actually endured quite a lot and managed to sort of single parent without really not taking care of my kids in a responsible way. And, and also that I had, I had kept in staying in the dynamic and in trying to keep making it okay that I actually strengthened the, the talons in me, you know, and, and that in, in, a, in some ways by my not being able to let him go or let it be messy or say what wasn't okay and detach and say no more, that I was bound, but I was also carrying him in a lot of ways, you know, I, it, it it continued the relationship potentially longer than I should have. And I, I was the strong one because in many ways, you know, as we understand, like hurt people, hurt people. And it was, it was his hurt that was hurting me. And I kept holding on to it instead of allowing him potentially to fall if he was or to fly. Right. Was there... Was that a, a particular moment in time that you had that realization or was it something that slowly progressed over time where you had the, the, maybe the awakening, the awareness that you are, you are en enabling it in a way? Yeah, that's the word. <laughs> yeah, I was a little hesitant to say it, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. And the complexity too, be, because, he, um, yeah, I won't speak for him. Okay. So <laughs> yes. Enabling. Um, it was again, a bit of a process, you know, there are sort of pinnacle moments where you go like, I get this. And mm -hmm. I think the moment that I describe in the book is one where I'm in the sunshine and I'm sitting and I recognize that I must do this for myself and that I can't save this person and I can't save the marriage that I wanted to save. And there was such a sense of grief mm. and loss. Yeah. And relief. And relief. Because it, ultimately it wasn't mine to do or mine to carry. It was a misunderstanding on like, you know, a soul level thinking like I have to make it okay. Yeah. And that's, that wasn't possible. Right. That's your caring nature, right? That's uh, coming out and you wanting to make it okay for, for the others. Yeah. yeah. I mean, and I think we all have a bit of that, right? Like yeah. <laughs> nobody yeah, wants degrees. to be mean and horrible and, yeah. and ruin their relationships. <laughs> right. I want to talk about courage. Looking back at your experience now from a safe distance, what did courage look like for you? Great question. Courage can look different according to the moment. And this is something that I've spoken about before. Like, until you're ready to leave or make those steps, courage can be staying. 
and trying to figure out what's safe and what isn't. And people, you know, that have situations were far worse and far more really like, you know, in the scheme of things, I, I feel very fortunate. It could have been so much worse and it is for many people. And so how to be smart and keep your yourself and your children and the people around you safe is an act of courage, whatever form it takes. And so there was a time where that was part of it. Like I need to stay and be, you know, conciliatory or be kind in this moment when part of me is like, I'm so angry and I don't want to be nice, but in order to make this moment safe with this person that I don't feel safe with, I have to do things that would otherwise feel icky, you know, and seemingly not courageous, not be, you know, fists up and fighting for what I believe in or fighting through the truth. It can actually be an act of courage. And so that was a piece that I was really ashamed of for a long time. And I want to be quite clear to people like, you do what you need to do to stay safe. And that's courageous. And then slowly by, you know, inch by inch in making sort of what is the right path? What is the right step each day, each moment? And like, you know, small, big, small moment to kind of in the bigger picture, what are the right things to do? And so signing divorce papers, you know, saying, yes, they have to be delivered. You know, all of these were weird acts of courage that on the outside seem like just an, you know, an action. And yet to me, it felt enormous um, being able to get a restraining order, active courage to like write down, basically showing other people that there were reasons for me to be afraid, which seemed really strange to be doing when in many ways this person was, you know, right. You know, like not, not, not harm, not dangerous in other circumstances. So each of those pieces was in hindsight, sort of an act of courage and every act of protection on behalf of my kids. And even in the moments of allowing them the dignity of their own experience rather than continuing to protect them from the truth um, mm. in whatever form that is like that's been a hard thing to do and yet I think the right thing to do because when I recognize at certain stages obviously you don't give it to them all at once you know that that that's sort of uh, responsible to to give information only as needed and in the right moments and so forth that those those felt like acts of courage well, thank you. I really wanted to presence that courage is in the little things, you know, like I think a lot of people think of courage having to be big, bold actions and uh, not at all. Courage can be the a real little, a little action. Speaking right, like speaking to, yeah. You know, you mentioned the little ones, like really little, like I, you know, mentioned in the book, like making pancakes was like yes. Heroic effort, like <laughs> yeah. Sometimes Not it's making, an act of courage just getting out of bed, you know. Right, making you know the right decision on which pair of slippers to get. You know, like. <laughs> oh, wonderful! And speaking up. Speaking and speaking up. up, yeah. 
All right. You share the time you first went to see a therapist and while waiting in the reception area, you discovered a, a pamphlet called the Bill of Rights. Can you talk about this Bill of Rights and how its, uh, its discovery was another turning point for you? Oh, yeah. Sure. Uh, I remember the moment so viscerally. I came into this therapist's office and they had a rack of kind of pamphlets and sheets and stuff. And I was scanning and I saw this blue page and I pulled it out and it said Bill of Rights. And I thought, huh. And I, I read that and the, just the tears just started falling out of my face. It was uh a recognition of what I hadn't given myself permission to be, to have. And I was able to give it to everybody else, extend those rights to everyone else. And um, it's a weird thing, you know, that moment of I'm part of, you know, everybody else I'm, I am. And recognizing how I had disconnected myself in that weird way too. Like mm. I am, part of everyone and I do deserve these right. rights right. and and that I had really not allowed myself the dignity of these rights to be extended to me so in seeing this list and it was uh, 28 rights on this pamphlet if uh, your book has it right with 16 of them uh, things that you are not responsible there's some examples such as uh, you are not responsible to please unpleasant people. You are not responsible to sacrifice your integrity for anyone. You are not responsible to bear the burden of another's misbehavior. And you do have the right to ask for help or emotional support. You do have the right to make mistakes until you get it right. And you do have the right to change your mind or choose a different course of action. These are just a, a few examples that are included on this this list of 28 rights. And I'd asked Suzanne if she could provide a copy of those rights for our listeners. So if you want to see the full list, go to the show notes and we'll include a link there to our toolbox where you can find uh, the Bill of Rights along with a number of other great resources that have been gifted to us by our, by our guests. So thanks, Suzanne, for... Um, providing that to us because I, I thought that list of 28 was pretty powerful and you know it's a good reminder for all of us some of these things even regardless of whether you you're in a domestic abuse situation or not there's a lot of things there that i'm like hmm i could probably up the game a little bit and how i'm uh, how i Re treating myself so it's a it's a good a good little another tool something to put in our our, our toolbox to help uh help us think about how we want to move through life so i i want to i want to move on to asking you about asking for help in your book you mentioned how difficult it was for you to ask for help because you have so much two beautiful, healthy children, a beautiful home, money and resources. And so you question, how could someone who had so much deserve or ask for help? Having come out the other side now, what's your advice that you would have for someone who might feel the same way that they aren't deserving or they are too well off to ask for help? Yeah, it's a point that I was embarrassed to share even in writing, like it brought it up again. I'm like, mm -hmm. oh my goodness, you know, I, I am so fortunate. I'm so blessed and lucky and, you know, I have so much. 
And how could I need and be so seemingly incapable and can't figure my way out through this? I'm educated, you know, I ha- it, did, it just didn't make sense. And so that it added to more shame. Mm-hmm. And what I can tell you is that is not a constructive emotion whatsoever. You, you may feel it and do it anyway. And because there's no, no benefit to you staying locked in that chamber of silence or the box, as I refer to it. And in fact, by reaching out, you're saving yourself. You're saving a lot of lives that are connected to your life life, you know, whether it's kids or friends that have been worried about you. And it allows somebody else to be able to extend help to you, which always feels good. And that's, that was one of the ways Mm -hmm. kind of out for me in terms of feeling better about myself was to start volunteering and, and being able to help others. Like when you have that flow again, and being a participant in life of like, I have something to give and I receive, it makes it a little easier mm-hmm. to take that receipt of help of any kind. And that really, you know, it's a little bit of our ego that gets in the way to think, well, yeah, I have these things, but it doesn't mean I'm perfect. <laughs> and it doesn't mean that I, I need no help as a human. Because while you can have the trappings of wealth and all the good stuff, you can still be a really hurting human on the inside. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I think that, you know, maybe the whole moment that we're in in examining the challenges around mental health, this is part of the, part of the problem is that it's not easy to ask for help. And yet it's so important. Mm-hmm. So thank mm-hmm. you for allowing me the opportunity to speak about that. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's it's funny how we, we put limits on ourselves in that way too, right? Like, uh, I just feel like we, we need to do it all on our own. We don't, we feel somehow lesser than if we need to ask for somebody, ask for help for something. I know I suffer from that. I, you know, still like I, I'm aware of it and, and I, I still do it. I still suffer through things on my own a lot of times. I'm getting a lot better. You know, but it's, uh, it's a work in progress. It's a work in progress. Well, it's an interesting, you know, like dual thing in some ways to do it on your own can be empowering and feel good. Like, yes, I did that and I figured it out. And then yeah. there are times when it kind of slips from being, you know, an act that's developing you to one that's really suffering. Right. And so being aware of like, where, you know, are you on that edge and when yeah. does it require help yeah. from outside yeah. awareness that's key isn't it it is huge mm-hmm. awareness. towards the end of your book you touch on listening to that inner voice and that you are now committed to listening to different calls to action you say the inner voice i wait for is not screaming or bossy but one that is calm and steady poised and clear I like to call that voice inner wisdom. I wanted to bring this up because it provides, a, I think, a brilliant guideline in distinguishing between that inner voice of wisdom that wants to guide you to your highest self and that inner critic or the ego that is full of fear and will hold you back or keep you stuck. You know I'm all about this inner wisdom stuff, so I was delighted to see these uh, <laughs> some of this in your book. Do you think that 
inner voice of wisdom was always there and just got drowned out by the other worried, bossy voice? Or do you think the inner voice of wisdom only emerges after you were able to calm the other ego and fear-based voice? Uh, It's such a great question. And I would say it was there. And I think we all have it as children and that often it gets conditioned out of us through, you know, either our family culture, societal culture, you know, the ideas of, of what we think as, you know, as we're growing up and then kind of blob on to our like, you know, inner wisdom voice. We're like, well, I must be wrong, you know? And so it, it took the, the sort of crisis of this to like go, no, I, I got to find this thing again, start digging. <laughs> um, and there's so many wonderful uh, tools, including your own, which I so appreciate, you know, this, this accessing joy and that inner wisdom is a huge key to sort of tapping our own resilience and, um, and it isn't a screaming, haranguing, nasty voice. It, it is a still quiet one. And mm-hmm. that's how, you know, it's the right one. Um, yeah. Do you have any tips on how to amplify that inner voice of wisdom? I mean, you, you mentioned tapping into joy. I think that's, that's key. Is there any other, anything else we can do to strengthen that, that voice that wants to guide us? Ah, lots of things. Uh, <laughs> yeah, bring it on. <gasps> having fun playing 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 is a wonderful access point Mm. to tapping that um then of course mindfulness and meditation is a a terrific way to quiet the noise um some people have difficulty doing more traditional like quiet the noise by, you know, saying no to it. And so there are all kinds of other tools, even within the meditation toolbox of like, there's uh, different breathing techniques, whether it's box breathing, um, bellows breathing, sky breathing. Mm. Um, I've been doing a Kundalini breath work uh, the last year or so, and I love it, love it, love it, love it. Yeah, breathing is a huge thing, and we so often are just breathing in a really shallow area. So there's lots of great books, you know, whether it's Breath by James Nestor, you know, Mm. um, those are terrific. Then um, there's another book I can recommend, um, The The Way of Integrity, I believe it's called, by Martha Mm -hmm. Beck really great um the way of integrity by the martha way, beck okay yeah, well, yeah it's called the way of integrity yeah awesome. it's on my i just had to look <laughs> <laughs> um and, and as we mentioned earlier being creative whether it's writing writing poetry you know drawing sometimes that when you get out of the thinking brain and tapping into the other parts of your innate wisdom that that's often a great way to realign and tap into that inner mm-hmm. wisdom. awesome thank you for all of that um okay i want to i want to talk about voicelessness actually now um you started an initiative or we're involved in in an initiative where I think it was called WAVE, um, W-A-E-V, which is an acronym that stands for We Act to End Violence. Can you tell us a little bit about this initiative and why you feel it was so important? So while I wasn't the um, driving force behind the that subgroup, which is part of that domestic violence shelter that I was talking about earlier, um, called WISE. They're a terrific organization 
local to, to where I am. Um, that particular branch was really dedicated to how do we get people to understand domestic violence and sexual assault and, and the complexity of what the victims go through and how to help them on the other side. And so one of the things that we tried to figure out was about empowering and giving people voices once because they've often been silenced, whether it's in a case of domestic violence or sexual assault, they, they feel disempowered and voiceless. And so the, we, we came up with the idea of not just to speak out, which is often where people will stand, you know, and, and speak their truth out kind of in a public forum. We created a theatrical presentation of people's stories and they could do a dance piece of, you know, song, poetry, you know, written kind of monologue, whatever it was to then speak their experience to an audience so that the audience would understand from their perspective and having a, a face and a, a story to put with, you know, put it into context. And, and the, in the giving of it, in the, in the act of that theatricality of speaking mm. to an audience, it's also relieving you of that story to a degree. It's, it's you know, you get kind to like the them. And then not carry it yourself. Right. Kind of like the, the morning pages that we were talking about, but at a higher level where you're um, expressing uh, in a public form. Exactly. Wow. Exactly. And then there was the unification of those other, you know, the survivors, they call them, and I would like to call them thrivers, mm-hmm. um, as, as being a, a group together so that there was support from the other people that had been through something potentially the same, similar, related, and so that it it helped empower each person to be able to regain their voice and speak. Right. And understand that you're not alone, that other people have experienced this. Um, I imagine there's some really great conversations that that came out of that. Yeah, it was interesting to, you know, because at the time, like I said, it was sort of pre-Me Too, sort of on the cusp of it, that people came forward after the event and said, you know, I had no idea. And I had no idea that was so pervasive in our area. You know, it was really, and it still happens all the time where you never realize what's happening behind someone's closed door. So, yeah. Uh, So the umbrella organization um, is called WISE, W-I-S-E. Okay. We'll, we'll include information uh, on the, in the show notes. So anybody that wants to look into that and maybe um, find some more resources to help them on their journey, that might be a good one for them. Thank you for um, sharing that. All right. Um, Yes. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I want to, um, I want to read a short paragraph from your book. If that's okay. Uh, In the last chapter, you so eloquently say the walls of my prison which once felt so impenetrable and inescapable are made of thoughts and emotions that I can now navigate, even override. How did this happen? It's not as if I have uncovered some earth shattering method. I am journeying the path of self-discovery that countless humans have trekked before me and countless will after me a path that's different for each of us, yet holds the same fabled obstacles. 
A little further down on that page, you then mention an inscription that is at the entrance of the Oracle of Delphi that simply reads, know thyself. And you say this is the root force behind your passionate quest to understand the world and yourself. It gives me goosebumps. It really does. I believe that mantra to know thyself is so important. I feel like it in many ways describes the joyful journey. The process is not always joyful. In fact, it can be darn right painful at times. If we are to create a life that we love and one that is true to who we really are and is full of joy, we must truly endeavor to know thyself. I feel like this is our ultimate purpose, our ultimate purpose. And as we better understand who we really are, we are better able to serve others on their joyful journey. And Suzanne, I want to acknowledge you and thank you for walking that path and for being so courageous and vulnerable in sharing your journey with others. In so doing, you are shining a bright light and making it easier for others to see the way. And joyful journeyer, those who are listening, thanks for being with us on this journey too. Our path may be different, and yet we can walk those paths together as we grow, learn, and understand who we truly are. To end this episode, I've invited Suzanne to read another short poem in her book, as I love the sense of hopefulness and new possibilities it presents. The poem is titled, The Bulb, by Suzanne Dudley. Thank you, Anita. And I I so appreciate you and the work you're doing and the, the truth of that sort of joyful journey can be challenging and yet to know yourself and that discovery is so joyful and that allows you to bring joy to yourself and others. So yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to be on here and I will share the poem, The Bulb. Thank you. The Bulb. I am a tight fist in the frozen earth, unnoteworthy, not as firm as a stone, nor of enduring value like a gem. I sense muffled footsteps, feathery breezes, trill of song, snapping twig and whisper of rain from another world, which I dream of entering and will enter dreaming. Now I follow a code to remain still, quiet, unnoticed. As the soil, as the cold soil grows buttery and smells brown and green, I will slowly burst, rise and morph, press up blind and grasp down sure spidery tendril explorers, curious in the thick, dark dirt. I stretch, moving to my limits to take what I need and search for what I crave. And then a bold blade of me will play red carpet for my fleeting celebrity as the audience hungry for color and celebration awaits. My face will emerge innocent to reveal my velvet firework in modest dazzle. So beautiful. Thank you. Thank you so much, Suzanne. Mm. That's just a, a little taste of... Suzanne's 
brilliant writing. She carries you through her personal journey. And you're, you feel like you're right there, right there with Suzanne. It's a real, you've got a real gift for storytelling and you make it easy to understand and you give some great direction or ideas and you give hope, which is so important. <laughs> hope. Thank you. Thanks. We'll include links to the show uh, or uh, in the show notes, pardon me, where you can find uh, Suzanne's book and connect with, with Suzanne. And again, I so appreciate you, Suzanne, truly. And Joyful Journeyer, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you. you next time. Thank you so much, Anita. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for joining me on the Joyful Journey podcast. If anything resonated for you from today's show, or if you are looking for more clarity in your life, clarity of purpose, or how to activate that purpose, then head over to joyfuljourney.ca and become a member of our community. We'll start by sending you a free download of our three guiding principles to inner wisdom, which will give you a great foundation for finding the clarity you are seeking. And you'll become part of a growing community of people who are raising the collective consciousness. So head over to joyfuljourney.ca and I look forward to connecting with you directly.